This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. When it comes to mental health and suicide prevention, listening is a vitally important component. When people are struggling and feeling like they're not getting the support they need, they often say, no one is listening to me. When people do get the support they need, they often say, at last, someone is listening to me, or this is the first time someone has listened to me. Before we meet this week's guest, I'd like to explore the theme of listening with our regular co-hosts, Danny and Paul, who have hopefully been intently listening to the opening of today's show. Of course. Absolutely. Listening intently uh, here, Steve. Well, yes. uh, Thank you both. Uh, Look, Paul, I come straight back to you. How important do you feel listening is in mental health and suicide prevention? It's absolutely crucial. As you've already said, it's, you know, people... Uh, often say that uh, you know when they finally feel listened so you know it's a turning point for them and it's built into all, all the training mental health first aid training and suicide first aid training um, the, the training that Samaritans and Lifeline and other organizations do for people taking calls from those who are in crisis listening is a key component of that and in fact often when people call crisis helplines listening is is the major part of the process. And sometimes people say things like, oh, I, I didn't know what to say to somebody. When somebody's in crisis, I didn't know what to say to them. And, and the response is, well, I didn't actually want you to say anything. I just want you to, to listen. You know, I mean, it's, listening is absolutely crucial. And, and people who learn to be good listeners, it's a transformational experience often. Well, that's interesting you should say that, because some people seem to be naturally good listeners. But do you think it's something we can all get better at? Is it something we should all try to be better at? It's true that some people are, you know, maybe you could say naturally um, good listeners, or or maybe people get better at it over time through their experience of learning that it's, it you know, appears to listen. But it is a skill that people can learn. It's a combination of wanting to listen and having the ability to listen. So the wanting to listen, you know, clearly the motivation is is crucial. A lot of people don't actually listen. They just wait for the next opportunity to speak. You know, people go into meetings with things they want to say, statements they want to make. You know, people, if you look on social media, you often see somebody 
uh, some people who reply immediately. You know, whenever you put a post up, people who remi- reply immediately. They haven't had time to think about what you've said or listen to what you've said. Uh, they've just responded. And you can always get better at listening. And I would suggest it's a good skill to learn. Um, I guess today, Debbie Rogers has, has developed Sean's place around listening to the men who come along and providing services in line with their needs. And we'll hear more about this when we speak to her shortly. Danny, what do you feel makes a good listener? I think it's really important to be a genuine listener. And by that, I mean showing people that you, you are genuine, genuinely interested in what they're saying. Um, this was something Jordan was really good at. And you could tell in the way that you would maintain eye contact with you during a conversation and in the responses he would give back to you. And you knew that he'd taken in every word that you'd said to him. Um, I think we should all be more aware of the importance of active listening and that's giving someone your complete and undivided attention, um, which then makes your response more considered and thoughtful. It shows that person that you care and it allows them to more readily open up. Um, And then in turn, this can help with spotting the signs of mental health issues and and then make a huge difference to how someone feels and, and possibly to them getting help that they need as well. And I think that's a really important, the the word there that uh, Danny's used, genuine listener. um, uh, And it's interesting to hear that that you felt Jordan was a a real genuine listener. You know, I remember doing some mentoring with some young researchers once and we went out and did an exercise and I was listening to their clients. uh, And and at the end of it, they said, oh, you know, you seemed as if you were genuinely interested in what they were saying. And I said, well, I was. (laughs) I was actually listening to them. You know, so I was just doing what... I felt came naturally and the natural thing to do, but you know it's not natural for everybody. So genuine, I think, is a uh, genuinely wanting to listen is really really important. Thanks, Danny and Paul. I'm sure our guest uh, for today's show, uh, Debbie Rogers, will have some views of her own about this topic when we speak to her shortly. First, let's take a break, and we'll be right back after this. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Time right now for this week's inspirational book of the week. This week's inspirational book is The Emotional Life of Your Brain. How to change the way you think, feel and live. It is by Richard J. Davidson with Sharon Begley. This groundbreaking book by a pioneer in neuroscience brings a new understanding of our emotions. Why each of us responds to differently to the same life events and what we can do to change and improve our emotional lives. We can deepen our understanding of the mind-body connection, as well as conditions like autism and depression. Davidson stretches beyond mainstream psychology and neuroscience, and it expands our view of what it means to be human. So once again, this week's inspirational book of the week is The Emotional Life of Your Brain, How to Change the Way You Think, Feel and Live by Richard J. Davidson with Sharon Begley. In June of 2020, I was introduced to today's guest by a mutual LinkedIn acquaintance. From that moment, Debbie Rogers has become someone I consider to be a good friend and a person I hugely admire for her ambition, tenacity, and most of all, her humility. Debbie has won numerous awards and what she has achieved in a little over two years in memory of her brother, Sean, is nothing short of remarkable. Debbie, welcome to Jordan Space. I'm absolutely thrilled you were able to make time to join us. How are you? 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've listened to the other shows and I was waiting to be asked. So when you asked me, I was like, yes. Thank, <laughs> thank, thank goodness we've invited you. No, <laughs> really, really good to, to have you uh, join us here. Um, in the more than two years since you and I were first introduced to each other, it, it, it seems like you haven't stopped in your quest to support men in particular who are struggling with their mental health. Before we talk about Sean's Place and the incredible work you're doing there, you and I obviously share a common experience in that both Sean and Jordan were aged 34 when they took their own lives in 2019, Sean in July and, and Jordan a few months later in December of that year. Would you tell us a little bit about Sean? What are some of your fondest memories of your brother and how would you describe him to anyone listening to today's show? Uh, he was just so much fun um, and I feel like when we talk about Sean at the moment it's all you know about the end of his life but before that he was just full of character he was like we used to call him our fourth child because he was just the biggest kid in the room he's had the kids swinging off the lampshades you constantly be telling them to sit down and behave like he was one of the kids but he was just lovely really kind and caring um, like there was only 14 months between me and Sean so everyone used to think we were twins and we practically were we did everything together um, from fighting in the park after school I remember Sean got jumped by a couple of like lads where we used to live when we were in primary school and um, I've always been really protective over them so I ended up like fighting with these lads sticking up for my brother and we used to laugh at, about it when we got older um, and then Sean moved me down the aisle on my wedding day and um, he'd been in hospital a couple of weeks before that so we didn't think he would be well enough to do it but he was and um, even up until the night before he was really nervous and he didn't think he could do it but seeing him stand up in front of all of our family and friends and read out this most beautiful story about me and Sean it was just like the proudest day of both of our lives it was gorgeous. Oh, no, that, that's wonderful. And if, if I've learned anything from what you've just said is um, don't pick a fight with any of your friends because um, <laughs> yes. uh, Debbie will step in and and, and sort us out. But uh, no, some wonderful memories uh, there. And, um, you know, obviously a you know, hugely close relationship between you both. The theme of this week's show is, is the power of listening. And, and Danny, Paul and I have just been discussing the importance of listening, particularly in the context of mental health and suicide prevention. I understand that leading up to Sean's suicide, you were having huge difficulty in getting anyone to listen to your concerns about your brother's well-being. You mentioned, as you say, being in hospital, you know, just not long before your wedding day. So despite your pleas to mental health services, you you, you just weren't being listened to. Can, can you tell us what you know, these issues were and, and, and really what happened on July the 20th of 2019? Yeah, so Sean had, his mental health had been declining for quite a few months up until he died. He's had a change in his community mental health team. Um, and his previous nurse was amazing. She really listened to the family. I used to meet with her every half term. Every time I was off school, we'd have a meeting about with Sean, like Sean was included in that around, you know, what medication he was on, you know, what support was available in the community and, you know, what, almost like what was next for Sean. But then the new team that took over didn't believe in that relationship with families. There was no contact there. My, my you know, messages to her weren't being passed on. And it was really, really difficult because Sean had a recent change in medication during that time of changing teams as well. So there was a lot of change going on for him. Um, and I've, in the four years, Sean, I've been under the early intervention teams. I've never had to contact them once concerned about him because, he, you know, he was safe and he, he was OK. He was, he was surviving. 
but in the last three months before Sean died, I'd contact them over 20 times, begging them for help, and knew we weren't well. Some of the things he was saying were really, you know, out of the ordinary. He told me that he was suicidal, um, but sadly, they just kept saying, well, he's coming to the end of his time with us. He's got to start helping himself. He doesn't meet criteria for hospital, so there's not much we can do. Um, you know, he's, he's all they kept saying was he's coming to the end of his time with us. So as a family, that left me feeling really anxious, and Sean was really anxious about what was going to happen next. Um, and a couple of days before Sean died, it was my graduation. And at that time, things were particularly bad. Sean was hearing voices that were getting louder. He thought that um, people were phoning the police on him and, you know, saying all these really bizarre things that we knew couldn't have been true. But for Sean, he was so frightened. He didn't know what was true and what wasn't. Um, and the day before Sean took his own life, I'd contacted the hospital twice that day. Um, when I say the hospital, the community, community mental health teams who knew Sean quite well at that time, to say, I'm really, really scared. He's either going to hurt someone else or he's going to hurt himself. The things he's saying are really unusual. He's not looking after himself. He's not engaging. I'm scared that he's going to, you know, something bad's going to happen. And even at that point, oh, you know, we've seen Sean Wednesday. Sean was fine. There's nothing we can do. He's got our number if he, if, if he needs us. He knows to call us. So that night, I knew that there was nowhere else to turn. I was banging on the door of the people who were supposedly there to help him. Mm-hmm. You trust the professionals and you trust what they're telling you. So when they were telling me there was nothing else they can do, I believe that because that's all I knew at the time. They were the only go-to people that I had around Sean. So I contacted Sean at 11 o'clock that night just to, you know, check in. I knew we weren't okay. And I said, you know, I just want to see if you're all right. And he was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And he didn't sound tired, but I didn't know the cues. Then I had no training. I didn't run Sean's place. I didn't know what to look out for. So I actually said to him, you know, if you've got your sleeping tablets, why don't you take one of them? Just get yourself off to sleep, mate. And I'll give you another call first thing in the morning. And then obviously by the next morning, um, I couldn't get through to him on the phone. I was extremely worried. I went down to his flat, he wasn't answering the phone. I could hear the phone ring and he wasn't answering the door. And I phoned the community mental health teams back and said to them, look, I've been phoning you for weeks. I've been really worried about my brother. I can't get hold of him. I know he's in his flat. I can hear his phone and he's not answering his door. And the response that I got was, well, there's nothing we can do if you're worried. You just need to phone the police. And it was literally that blase, the conversation. And again, I just felt so alone. I was like, what do we do? And now, you know, and my gut feeling told me that this was it. So we did phone the police and they went into his flat and found him. The community mental health teams phoned me back about two hours later just to see how Sean was. And when I told them that Sean had passed away, um, they were saying to me, is there anything we can do? Do you want us to come down and support? Yeah, you know, all of this like really frustrating stuff. It's like, where was you when I actually did need you, when my brother needed you? And that just spiralled into this really awful world of inquests and mm. Article 2 and everything else. And it just felt like if I had, if my cries for help had to be listened to and taken seriously, Sean may still be with us now. But sadly, the value of the voice of the family is very often not heard. Thank you for sharing that, that Debbie. I mean, I, you know, I know I've heard your story before, but I think for anyone listening, kind of almost be flabbergasted in, in a way and... and you know, I, I think back to a couple of things you said there about um, the response from the community team, just saying, you know, that, you know, he's absolutely fine. We've spoken to him. You know, that was the language that I was using when Jordan's mother was, you know, worried and upset. And can you phone Jordan? And I'd phone him and he'd sound absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'd say, look, he seems absolutely fine. But look, I'm, I'm not a trained mental health expert like you. You know, I didn't know the cues. But you're talking about people here in the, 
are supposed to be trained, supposed to be alert, you know, to concerns and fears from families and individuals. So it, it's it, it, it's it's quite startling. Just something maybe our, our listeners will be interested in. And and for me, I know you 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 mentioned uh, was it sorry was it an Article Twenty? Uh, did you refer to an Article Two? In- Article Two, sorry, be, before just just to, just understand what an Article Two is. So where um, it can be almost evidence that the uh, that it's it's around the right to human life. So if it's beyond reasonable doubt that Sean's life could have been saved, well then that can trigger an article to inquest, and that forces the coroner to look at a wider scope of you know the, the life, you know who was involved. They have to speak to more witnesses. Um, and the, the conclusion, you know, there's, there's almost like no conclusion to it. You know, Sean's not going to come back. Nobody's going to lose a job. It just means that the inquest is more thorough and more, you know, more witnesses are called. So thankfully, I was really, really pushing for that because I knew Sean's life could have been saved and it wasn't. Um, and as a result of the inquest, so far, we know that um, lessons will be learned from it. Whether that happens or not, we don't know. Um, but we were just thankful that we got the opportunity to share Sean's story more than we would have done had it not been an article to inquest. Yeah, and and you talk about lessons learned and you hope from the lessons learned that there'll be actions that'll take place. And I suppose my question to you, Billy, you know, is what do you believe needs to change as far as mental health services are concerned, certainly given Sean's experience? Yeah, there needs to be more free and immediate access to support um, that isn't necessarily NHS support, which is exactly why we created Sean's Place. Um, more support for families as well. So at Sean's Place now, we run a family support group and we provide suicide prevention training to our families so that they can pick up on the cues and they know exactly what to do and where they can get help so that they're not reliant on the professionals who quite often do miss those cues. Um, we shouldn't be sort of putting the onus onto other people when we could actually do something about ourselves with the right training, which I know is exactly what you guys are doing over at the Jaws and Legacy as well. There needs to be more awareness around medication and the impact that medication can have on people's lives. You know, medication, get, when you get it right, can be the best thing ever for people. But when we get it wrong, it can also have detrimental effects to the life. And that, you know, sadly is why Sean potentially ends up with psychosis, why he did take his life after starting medication um, recently towards the end of his life. They all carry black box warnings. Yeah, there's no sort of check-in process when somebody starts antidepressants. So we definitely need to be doing more work around that. And better signposting. Our NHS professionals need to get better at signposting people to support earlier on when they first notice that someone is struggling with the mental health. Sean wasn't always as unwell as he was. He started off with mild to moderate anxiety and depression as a result of trauma when we were younger. Had Sean got earlier intervention then, he may not have got as unwell, but sadly there was nothing available. There was no Sean's place in the community. There was no Jaws and Legacy available then, sadly, because we had our loved ones with us. It took for people to die for action to happen and we almost we know it works the evidence is there you know sean's place shows that every day we just need more places like this to exist yeah debbie again it's 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 awful to hear um you know when you talk about sean and losing sean it's awful to hear that story but it's so insightful to hear it we're going to come on to hear more about what you've done with sean's place which is incredible and you are to some extent plugging the gaps in the system but just on the issue of the system, people often say to us, you know, when we do these kind of interviews, they talk about the mental health system and how the system has failed. I think a lot of people struggle with what do we mean by the system? You know, because we're talking about 
the organization of the system, the policies, the funding. We're also talking about people. We're talking about staff providing services. We're talking about people you've been in touch with and you've described some parts of the system that seem to be working and other parts that aren't. When it comes to the crunch, where you really needed that support, some people were making judgments about what support Sean needed or didn't need. And, and you know, we want to be supportive of staff who are working under difficult circumstances. But can you distinguish between you know, what the failures are of the system more broadly and, and what the failures are? I mean, do the staff themselves need better training or support, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. And this was so clear in Sean's case, you know, we, you don't always know what goes on behind the scenes until it's too late. But when there was an investigation into Sean's death, there was a lot that transpired. So, for example, they kept saying to me that Sean had capacity. Now, as a member of the public, I assumed that there would have been some sort of measure or some sort of test to assume that, but it wasn't. It was an individual who went off Sean's tone of voice and the fact that Sean said he was okay. And that's how they deemed Sean to have capacity, which then meant that he wasn't suitable or eligible for hospital. Had they had done a capacity assessment, it would have been, it, it may have been a different conclusion. We can't say it would have been, but it may have been a different conclusion. So that's what should have happened. A capacity act assessment should have been taken, but because there was no policy in place for that call handler to know exactly what she needed to do, um, it didn't happen. And I suppose in it's those instances when the system fails because the, the policies and procedures on streamline and people are left to make their own judgments and their own calls sometimes which you know everyone makes mistakes and in this instance it was a mistake for sure not to have had an assessment there was other times when sean was having dual therapy towards the end of his life and it wasn't recorded on the system that sean was having dual therapy despite it being signposted through the mental health teams and it was because of the systems the systems weren't speaking to each other so that could have potentially had a detrimental effect on sean's well-being and sean's mental health at that time he was having trauma therapy twice through two different organizations but they were called something slightly different to sean wouldn't have picked up on that but the teams definitely should have done um, and in, in terms of medication it was Sean was prescribed a lot of medication, but because it was coming through, some were coming through the GP and some were coming through the psychologist. It was almost like this again, the systems weren't talking to each other, and that left Sean particularly vulnerable when it comes to understanding his medication. Um, th there's a lot that needs to be done. And one of the issues that comes up has come up frequently over the years that I've been involved in, in suicide prevention work. There's a lot of talk about risk assessment systems versus safety plans for individuals and tailored services personalized for individuals who are clearly in danger and you know despite the fact that these issues have raised more than 10 years ago it's taken you know at least 10 years to get this starting to be brought into the system uh, to change the system do, do you in your case with sean was there a sense that they were doing some kind of broader risk assessment and saying and concluding that he wasn't in danger or were they taking seriously your concerns that you thought he was in danger right now? No, there were things that could have been done, but they weren't. Um, what they did use was a tool called a wellness recovery action plan. So it's a bit like a safety plan, but those tools are only a tick box if they're not meaningful and if the content in them isn't meaningful to that individual. Sean had evidence in his notes during the communication that he would not use that action plan. There was nothing in there that he found meaningful. They, they kept updating it, even though Sean said that it wasn't a tool that he would use. It was just a tick box simply for the system to say, we've completed this with him. So I think that there are, there are some elements of safeguarding and you know layers to protect somebody, 
but they're only effective if they are going to be used and if the content in there is actually useful. In January 2020, uh, you set up Sean's Place to support men in the Sefton and Liverpool areas. In those early days, Debbie, I recall that often when we were messaging, you'd be heading off to work early, juggling the school run, as well as a full-time job as a school attendance officer, while trying to get Sean's Place up and running at the same time. Tell us about those early days. I understand you have three children as well. What, what were those times like for you? Oh, when I think back, I, I genuinely just, I think I was just in a constant state of exhaustion. Um, but that fire in my belly and that pain from recently losing Sean just overtook all of that. Um, they say, don't they, if like, you, as a mum, if you've got a child lying underneath a car, a mum will find the strength to lift that car. Um, and I truly believe that because I don't think I could create Sean's place now, today, Um in the, in the situation I am in my life. But at the time, I just found this inner strength and this burning passion to do something as a result of losing Sean because I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. I didn't want anybody else to feel the pain that I was experiencing at that time. Um, and you're right, I was working a full-time job. I did have three children. Thankfully, those children are incredibly patient and so was my husband. Um, and they 100% agreed that this needed to happen. Um, so yeah, I was working in my day job and then I was finishing and then I was going back to back meetings and just banging on the doors really. But at the same time, I was arranging a funeral for my brother. I was, you know, going through an inquest and an investigation in the hospital. So I was hiding a lot of the pain that was happening behind closed doors because I just really needed Sean's place to happen. Um, and thank God it did. I couldn't, I could never have imagined Sean's place would be what it is today back then. I just hoped and prayed that we could make a tiny difference in the community. Fantastic. And we're going to talk more about Sean's place very shortly. Many thanks, Debbie. We're going to take a break for some music now. And when we come back, I'd like to ask you about Sean's place, the services you provide to support men's mental health and the journey that you've been on to get Sean's place to where it is today. We'll be right back after this. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Hi, this is Steve. Just popped in to remind you to join me every day of the week right here on Yawa Radio for Yawa Breakfast. Uh, probably the best way to start your day. Listen out for the inspirational book of the week. We've got some great health and well-being tips for you and much, much more. And you might like to play What Song Are These Words From? Great feel-good music to start your day and lots, lots more. Join me 7 till 10 every day of the week for Yawa Breakfast right here on Yawa Radio. This is Yawa Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Jordan Space and we're talking with Debbie Rogers, founder of Sean's Place in Liverpool. On July 20th, 2019, Debbie lost her brother Sean to suicide. In the months that followed and whilst coming to terms with her own grief, Debbie made a commitment to provide the kind of support that she felt was lacking for her brother when he needed help with his mental health. Debbie, I think I have this right. You founded Sean's Place in January of 2020, a little over five months following Sean's death. Yeah, that's when we officially opened. Um, but we started actually doing pilot days for Sean's Place in the October, November and December. So I think it was about nine weeks um, after Sean died that we held our first pilot day because um, we wanted to make sure this wasn't, you know, I had no experience at all doing this. It was just something that I hoped we could create. So we needed to make sure we spoke to the community to make sure this is something that other people wanted. It wasn't just me wanting to do something for my brother. 
Um, so we invited the community into, you know, what was Sean's place at the time to say to them, this is our idea. This is what we're thinking about doing in the community. Is this something that you think would help you? Um, and in our first initial pilot days, we had about 12 men turning up to each of them. Um, we've, we've already put a survey out on social media to see the kinds of things that people that people would attend. So we knew pretty much what activities we were going to put on. There were things like our classes and we had a therapist on hand, we had a mindfulness coach and we just had tea and coffee, you know, really basic social interaction, but while we were doing activities as well. And the feedback was amazing. We had men who were walking through the door just in floods of tears saying, I've been looking for something like this for years. You know, I can't believe that this is open. You know, I've really, I've been looking for this for so long and now it's here. So that sort of certified that this is the right thing for us to do. So then we decided to open in the January. We actually opened in the dance school. They give us their space, um, again, just to see if it would work. And we've, we've grew since then. We now support around 150 men a week in the Sefton and Liverpool area. Um, and our range of support and the the you know the diversity of of that of what we're providing has just grown incredibly. I can remember actually in those those early days, and we were in COVID times then, of, of course. And I remember you you set up and created these recipes for guys to come in and do cookery, uh, and suddenly COVID hit and and the lockdowns. And if I remember that your husband Tony and yourself got in the car and you were driving around the streets, dropping off the 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 kind of supplies and the menus and the little packages on on these guys' doorsteps. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, when we look back, I don't know where we got the energy from. We we were a lot smaller than we couldn't do that now. We've got so many guys now but yeah back then we were we were very new when lockdown hit but thankfully we we had that flexibility as a service that we could adapt quite quickly and think on our feet a little bit the structures weren't so rigid um so we were creating like you know themed nights and quiz nights and dropping off recipes and cooking online together and you know it was quite cute when I look back at it now as much as it was a really distressing time we, we tried our best to make sure that people were still sort of not isolated and that they were, they were getting the support that they needed just in a more creative way. Yeah, and it's really interesting because what, what the sense that I get from what you're explaining there is that this is very much about community, you know, bringing guys together, you know, having them do things. It's not just about mental health and sitting in a room talking about my depression or my anxiety. Um, it's a real sense of, of purpose and coming together for people, which probably many of them are, are lacking. But it, it seems very evident from the the many testimonials that I've seen from guys who attend Sean's place that, you know, you have a model that works. What, what is it about Sean's place that is helping so many men to get back on their feet and experiencing a reduction in their symptoms of stress, anxiety and depression? What is the recipe for Sean's place, would you say? I think it's just understanding that this isn't a one size fits all. You know, we, we offer a broad range of services at Sean's place because what is right for one person won't be right for another. And I think that's what we're missing when we talk about mental health support. Everybody thinks that everybody must need counselling, for example. Now, counselling wasn't right for my brother. It hasn't been right for me when I've tried it. So we try something else and we speak to people who come through the door to say, what is it that's affecting you? What has you know led you to walk through the door to Sean's place? Where are the gaps? And you know, let's do something about it. Um, so it's very much led by the people who walk through the door pretty much. And then I go away and if I can't do it, I find a man who can, for example, then you know, we, we put on that service. But we've got the two elements. So we've got the social support, which a lot of the gentlemen need. They are isolated, they may be newly divorced and they've lost the way life it might be that they're recently bereaved and you know they're really struggling with their own company 
it could be so many reasons why a person can become isolated and lonely. But then we've got the other strands of um, services that we offer, which is our therapeutic support, which we've pretty much designed ourselves now. So we do offer counselling, we do offer hypnotherapy, but we also offer um, a new model that we've designed called RADS. And that is a combination of a support group and hypnotherapy attached to it. So they get in the therapeutic support, we're able to reduce the anxiety, depression and stress levels, but they've got the camaraderie of that group support, knowing that they're not alone, learning from each other's experiences and being able to you know, support each other. And it's been magic since we've developed that. So we've, we run a bereavement group specifically for men, which is incredibly popular at the moment um, in terms of men actually attending. We know other groups that just can't engage men in their, in their bereavement programs, but the way we've done it, thankfully men are coming through the door. Um, we also run it as fam- part of our family support group now as well. So we're, su- we're supporting the whole family system. So we're doing the work with the gentleman in our service. We're supporting the whole family and life is improving outside of Sean's place for them. Um, so I feel like we-, we have got a really good model that now we're able to pick up and move to different areas of um, the UK, hopefully. I wouldn't have said that a year ago. I'd have been too scared to say that. But now I feel like we are at the stage where, okay, this is working. Let's share it with the rest of, you know, the the people out there. Debbie, I I find that although I'm surrounded by the topic of suicide every day, working with the Jordan Legacy, um, I was talking to my dad about this the other day, I find that I mostly managed to separate this from my personal loss of losing Jordan to suicide. And I just wondered what it's like for you. Has having Sean's place enabled you to better cope with Sean's loss? Or do you find it's like a daily reminder as to what's happened? Or Yeah, I, th- I think, I don't know. I dread to think where I would be without Sean's place. Um, it was the most traumatic time of my life. Um, and I don't know really how I would have recovered had I not had that focus of Sean's place. So it's always like my therapy too. Um, you're right in saying that some days you do feel a little bit detached. Um and I do have to remind myself about Sean and, you know, the reason why Sean's place existed. But then we'll meet a guy who walks through the door. We've got a guy with us at the moment and it's very similar personality, very similar cheeky smile, very, very similar reasons for reaching out for support. And you can't help but be affected by that. You know, the times I've just been in floods of tears in my office because I've met someone who was just like Sean. And I always think to myself, if only Sean was, I had Sean somewhere like Sean's place, you know, he could have been doing what we're doing today and, you know, some days are harder than others, but on a whole, I'd say thank goodness that I did find Sean's place when I did. You know, I, I echo what everybody else has said. It's incredible what you've achieved there, and it's understandable um, why you've gone down this this route. You know, you're kind of tailor-made for this role to some extent. It comes across to people, um, although I, I know for sure it's not effortless. You had an idea in your head of what Sean's place needed to be because you said that you wanted somewhere, the kind of place that, that Sean would have benefited from having. But another key message that comes across is this tailoring and this development and particularly the listening. And this is something that we, we've been talking about uh, at the beginning of the show this week, uh, the importance of listening. So that's the way it comes across to me. And we have, I know we've talked about this a little bit um, previously, but just, just tell us how, is that consciously something that's part of what you do? Listening to the guys one-to-one and in groups, listening to the feedback, you know, and, and using that listening as part of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. That's what drives me and, and drives Sean's place. It's about thinking outside the box, not doing what's always been done, because what's always been done 
isn't working for a lot of people waiting lists are increasing the mental health professionals are on the knees and the systems are, are broken um so it's going to take for people like us to stand up and say okay what else can be done um and we found from doing that it's been really effective from the model that we've just explained before to we, we now have a pharmacist who comes in on site every friday we managed to work with our ccg and um they commissioned a pharmacist to support people who were new to medication to reduce that risk of them you know going on to take their own lives within that, that first two critical weeks of starting new medication and that all stemmed from speaking to people at our service around concerns around medication for example and um, all of the groups that we provide to sean's place are all you know led by them and from our passion to want to fill those gaps but now what we've started doing is researching and evidence and what we're doing and documenting it and relating it to academic research, relating it to what already exists and feeding it back into our NHS partners. So we're not working against them. We're saying to them, look, this is what we're piloting. This is what we've achieved. This is what's worked. Please listen to us. And um, thankfully, over in our side of the country, we do have some amazing professionals who are listening to us. They're asking us now for our research and our evidence and our data. And we're hoping that we can start seeing more of what we're doing rolled out um, more widely. And that's another thing that comes across, the integration and the collaboration. Yeah. You know, when we talk to other people about plugging gaps in the system, they often become isolated rather than integrated into that system. Uh, and also when people set up new services, it's often very hard for them to get the respect of the professionals and the academics and so on. You seem to have achieved that so incredibly well in such a short space of time. Yeah, I think when we first created Sean's Place, I was very angry with um, with the NHS and the fact that they found my brother. Um, but I've also met a lot of really amazing forward-thinking professionals who are like me and that they want things to get better for people. They actually cared about the people who that the serving. Um, and those are the people that are going to drive change. Um, so we want to work with them. We want to complement what already, what already exists and support them as well with our findings. We're on the ground floor. We're hearing from firsthand from people what's affecting them so we can drive that change together. It was hard for us when we first ex when we first opened um, because people have been around for a long time. They don't necessarily like new services opening. They're very skeptical. They think you're going to take all the money and all the funding and everything else. So I'm not going to say it was easy because it wasn't, um, but it seems to be getting a lot easier now. We, Like you said, we've earned the respect. We've proven what we're doing. We're not just opening our doors and saying, aren't we amazing? We're actually working incredibly hard to, to help our community. And I think people believe that now and the support of it. Debbie, we're almost out of time. Um, but before we let you go, each week at the end of every show, we always mention the hope word. You and I both know that tragically we lose 17 people to suicide every day in this country. Some of the families um, are going to find themselves in time wanting to do something to honour the person they've lost. Maybe they'll want to create somewhere like a Sean's place. What words of hope and encouragement would you like to share? Because we may just have one or more of those people listening to this show. I think if everybody try to do something well then the world will be a better place and you know if I had to listen to everybody who told me that Sean's place wouldn't work you know we don't need a Sean's place you know Sean's place doesn't have to be a place it could be an app it could be a telephone line whatever it was I would never have created it I had to listen to my gut instinct I knew it was needed and I knew it would have saved my brother's life so if you do have that gut feeling and you think you know you want to do something 
just do it. The worst thing that could happen is that it, it will work, but that's okay. At least you've given it a go. And I think we've all got that within us. We've all got the capability to try. And if we all try, we can, you know, hopefully save more lives. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on Jordan Space today. Um, I'm always uh, feeling inspired and energised whenever I hear you speak, and, and today has been no exception. Thank you so much. This has been a really lovely opportunity to talk about Sean and Sean's place, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you as well, guys. So thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to Debbie Rogers from Sean's Place for joining us on today's Jordan Space. We're going to take another short break for some music, and Danny, Paul, and I will be back shortly for a brief roundup of today's discussion. See you after this. Time for another inspirational quote. Be happy. Be inspired. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Zen proverb. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. Well, another fascinating insight into what can be achieved by someone with lived experience. Paul, what were some of the key points from Debbie's story which really stood out for you? Well, I think Debbie is a remarkable individual, absolutely inspiring. And, and what she's done with Sean's Place is, is absolutely incredible. And I've invited Debbie to speak at events and, and hope that with Debbie and I'm personally being inspired. And, and from the feedback, everybody uh, you know, that attends these events are incredibly inspired. I, I think that um, you know, the key things I take out are the way that um, she's developed Sean's place initially with an idea in her head, then the listening, then the development, the constant listening and the constant developing, the constant sort of uh, expansion of the different services whilst keeping it manageable. And the way she's linked up with other services uh, and, and even sort of, you know, effectively being, being socially prescribed now by the NHS, you know, to go to Sean's place. Uh, it is an incredible story. I, I always have a slight worry when, um, you know, people try to replicate that. And of course, you can't replicate Debbie. Debbie is Debbie. Um, but I think she's trying hard to, to document the model as, as a model that other people can replicate. Uh, anybody picking that up and wanting to run with it would just have to take into account everything else that Debbie said about this incredible source of energy um, and determination that she found after Sean's death. And I think all the reflections she's given, the, the weaknesses with the system, what she's learned, the way she's been determined with the, you know, following through the inquest process. Uh, yeah, you know, I could go on uh, giving glowing tributes to Debbie for a long time, but I'll stop there. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, you know, the, the model we can't replicate is, is Debbie. Dan, Danny, how, how about you? What were some of the key takeaways for you? Yeah, it was really inspiring to listen to Debbie's story and how far she's come with Sean's Place. Uh, we have our own vision of creating Jordan's Place during the next three years. Um, you know, we've talked about this before. Before he died, Jordan had said to his girlfriend, Charlotte, about what he would do if he won the lottery. And that was to invest in a place uh, where people who were struggling could go to get well again. Um, and I think Sean's place is, is evidence that it's not necessarily that men don't want to talk. It's probably more about them having the opportunities to talk and to be listened to. And, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, it's somewhere that men can go to feel genuine and listened to, somewhere they can go without judgment and, and share their experiences in a supportive environment. Um, so important for people to feel like they have a purpose and to feel like they belong and to be able to talk openly about how they feel. And there really needs to be more places like this, like Debbie was saying, for both men and women, 
um, so that people don't feel like going to the doctors or taking medication are necessarily their only options. Um, I really think it's about people having access to the best help for their needs and centres like Sean's Place have proved that people's mental health can be improved with the right support in place. I, th I think you're right. It's such an important um, message. Um, and clearly, there just aren't enough places like this out there at the moment. Well, thanks to you both and to our guest, Debbie Rogers, for joining us today. If you found today's show helpful or simply interesting and insightful, you can listen to recordings of previous shows on our website at www.thejordanlegacy.com by visiting the news, events and radio menu at the top of the page. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on both sites via the username at Jordan Legacy UK. That's it for another show. And from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and hopeful rest of your week. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy be inspired. This is Yawa Radio.